And as you're turning to Philippians 2, let me just tell you here at the outset that we're going to climb. This is like the K2 or the Mount Everest of Scripture. Okay, this is some of the highest heights, some of the loftiest heights uh, in all of God's Word. And really at the pivot point, the halfway point in our sermon series, Seven Words to Change Your Life, this uh, series, an attempt to um, really see the whole of the gospel narrative throughout uh, the scriptures. And so in the last few weeks, or really the first few weeks of the series, we started with this concept of God's glory, that everything exists ultimately for the glory of God. Uh, then uh, two weeks ago, we talked about God's redemption of us, that God has purchased us. He's bought us uh, through his blood. And then last week, we began to see uh, our response to God's action and activity through this concept of repentance Right, a turning from sin, an abhorrence of sin, turning towards Jesus, moving close to him, and casting ourselves fully and completely upon Jesus Christ and him alone. And now this morning, we come to the term, or the word that we're looking at this morning is humility. And really, we begin to make a shift away from these big, um, broad items and begin to address our heart and our mindset uh, with respect to the gospel. And so let's just begin to get to work here and let's begin with this thought, uh, humility. Lots of definitions, lots of ways that we uh, both rightly and wrongly think about it. Here's how I like to define humility. Humility is simply understanding who I am in light of who God is. It's understanding who I am in light of who God is. When I see God rightly and I, then, then I begin to view myself through that lens, humility is going to be the natural product that comes out of my life. Because I'm seeing correctly. I see God for who God is, which will then reveal and expose who I am for who I am. Now, there, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of bad definitions for humility. There's a lot of wrong thinking for humility. Sometimes in the church, we're, uh, we're, we're guilty of moving to this place where uh, humility uh, almost takes on this, this bigger concept than it, than it really is. Uh, so that anything that is good or anything that stands out or uh, you can't be proud of anything... And it's just not, that's not humility. And then, then we have this concept of this false humility. You ever heard of false humility? False humility is this idea of, you see, we, we, we attempt humility, but the problem with false humility is that it, it hasn't taken root in my heart. So we say things like, I'm terrible, or I'm the worst, or I'm horrible, or nothing good could come out of me. Now, see, here's the problem with that. It's, it's an attempt at humility, but it's a poor attempt at humility because who is still the object of attention? You are. See, that, that, that's the key, all right? Well, you, you want humility. You want to look for humility in someone's life. Figure out who the object of their attention is. If it's themselves, I don't care what they're doing. I don't care what they look like. There's not humility in that person. Because true humility, right, true, true humility, it, it, we, it sees God as the object of our attention. It has God as the focus of our vision, not ourself. And as I begin to see God rightly, as I see his power and his supremacy, uh, his greatness and his splendor and his, his, his um, just overwhelming nature, it begins to give us a proper estimation of ourself. And then that's manifested in how I engage everyone and everything around me. And so as we come to Philippians 2, I think where God's 
word is going to take us here this morning with respect to humility in light and in the context of the gospel is uh, that you and I are going to walk out of here being able to understand who we are in light of who God is and that we would live according to that. That our lives would reflect that truth or that reality. And so before we go any further, I want to, I want to pray. Dwayne's already read uh, the passage this morning. So let me pray for us and specifically that God would give us humble hearts to hear uh, what it is that he's after uh, this morning. Why don't you join me and we'll pray uh, together. Lord Jesus, we, um, we want to humble ourselves before you. Uh, God, physically, um, in our hearts, in our minds, in every uh, sense of who we are. God, we want to come before you in understanding that you are far greater, far better. You're just vastly superior to who we are. And yet, God, in the midst of that, you choose to set your love upon us. You choose to pursue us. God, your desire is redemption. And you are willing to go to great lengths to accomplish that. So God, we pray that this morning that our response would be a response of humility that we would see who we are in light of who you are, that we would rightly see you and then understand ourselves accordingly. That God, that your spirit would have the freedom to move and work within us to challenge or to convict, to correct, to exhort, to push, to prod, whatever it is that you need to do. Whatever's going on in our life and in the particular manner that we need to hear from you, God, we pray by the power of your spirit that you would do that this morning. We surrender ourselves to that. God, as is our custom. We pray for another church in the area. God, I pray for Hope West. I pray for Ryan Bestelmeyer, God, as they have their uh, soft launch today. God, I pray this be a great Sunday morning for those guys. I pray Ryan would preach phenomenally, that you would be honored and glorified in that group of believers. And God, that you would use that new church, that new body to bring great glory to yourself. And God, that you would use this church and this body to bring great glory to yourself. Jesus, allow us to hear your truth. Let us hear your truth. And would it change us this morning? We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, humility, seven words to change your life, talking about humility, four things uh, in the text that we're going to get to this morning. Uh, Just a little bit of context before we get to that. And uh, let me actually draw your attention to Philippians 1, uh, verse 27, so just a few verses uh, before where we're going to be this morning. And I want to read this verse. Uh, I think one, that I think this is actually the key verse for the entire book of Philippians, uh, but it also really helps us to understand what's going on, because what Paul has been talking about is he's talking about the advance of the gospel, the gospel going forward, that Jesus is being proclaimed and preached. And here's what he's calling the Philippian church to. Here's what he says. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Isn't that a huge statement? I mean, whose life is truly worthy of the gospel? I mean, none of our lives are truly worthy of the gospel, but Paul's calling them to something here. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, right? He's talking about this partnership uh, in the gospel. And what he talks about in verse 28 and 29 and actually in verse 30 as well, is he's talking about this, that, that he wants this advance of the gospel. He's pushing the Philippians in this manner, but it's coming through great struggle, great difficulty, great trial, 
That's the manner in which this is happening and which it's coming. And so what Paul is, he, he's making an argument. He's making a point. He's saying, hey, listen, in the midst of all these things, a life that is worthy of the gospel, he's going to prove his point in chapter 2, is a life of humility. See, the argument that he's making at the end of chapter 1 is going to become an illustration of how that's fleshed out in chapter 2. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time here this morning. So four, four things from Philippians uh, 2, 1 through 11 with respect to humility. Uh, here's the first thing. Look at verses 1 and 2. Is that we would embrace humility in our purpose. That we would embrace humility in our purpose. The purpose of our lives. So, right, Paul, again, making an argument that first word of chapter 2, in my translation, it says so. Some of your translations might say therefore. Right? He's tying these items together. Based on what I told you in chapter 1. Okay, now, connected to that, and look at what he says. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Really, he's posing these questions to the Philippian church. Hey, is this true? Are these things true? Of course, we would, with a resounding and emphatic yes, say those are true. He says this in verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in, full of, being in full accord and of one mind. And so Paul is making an argument. Really, he's making an argument here for unity. That's what he's calling them to. He's calling them to unity. But humility will be the means by which unity is accomplished. And that's what he's drawing them to and pushing them towards. See, because you can't have unity without humility. This, this same mind, this one mind, if we're going to be together on this, I've got to be about God's kingdom. I've got to be about God's agenda, which means my agenda, my kingdom, gets dropped down. It means the same for you. You've got to drop your kingdom, your agenda. It's got to take a, a back seat. It's got to go to a lower rung. Paul is saying, listen, we got to step away from ourselves and get, embrace what God has for us and embrace God's purpose for us, even, even, even if it lessens my importance, my influence, my significance. Now notice two specific ways in which, in which he does this here in verses 1 and 2. Okay, in verse 1 we see um, Paul is appealing for humility from God's work. Paul appeals uh, to humility for the Philippians, and I think uh, by, by extension and application, you and I here this morning, from God's work. And verses 1 and 2 is really, this is an if-then statement. If these things are true of God's work, then do these things in chapter 2. Well, let's just take a minute here. Let's look at what he's talking about with respect to God's work. He mentions four different things. If there's any encouragement in Christ... And he's just spoke about their sufferings and their struggles, their difficulties. It almost maybe seems kind of harsh. I know you're really struggling. I know things are really difficult. So listen, if there's any encouragement in Christ, see, because Paul, what Paul understood is in the same degree that there's difficulties and suffering and things of that nature that comes from following Christ, there's also great encouragement. In fact, he said that very thing in 2 Corinthians. The very beginning of 2 Corinthians, uh, in chapter 1, he says this. He says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Listen, in the same way that you're suffering, Christ is going to comfort or encourage you. Just ask yourself, has Christ encouraged me? 
Is there encouragement in my life? You might look at your present circumstances and go, you know, it's kind of hard to see. Okay, well, let me give you a little broader view. Has he encouraged you through the cross? Has he encouraged you through redemption? Has he encouraged you in reconciling you and making you right before God? Has he encouraged you through his forgiveness of your sin? Has he encouraged you through the gift of his grace and mercy? So you start thinking about that, you're like, uh, okay, yeah. There's quite a bit of encouragement there. And so Paul starts by saying, listen, I'm appealing to you if there's any encouragement in Christ. Yeah, there's quite a bit. Okay, how about the second one? Any comfort from love? He's speaking specifically of the love of God here, the Father, God's love to his people. And again, maybe at first glance you might go, man, I don't, I don't know that I'm feeling the love of God. And you start thinking a little bit broader. God's love in creation. God's love in his covenant for you and I. God's love in the reality that even though you and I reject him, he continues to pursue us and chase after us. The reality that God's love is not conditioned upon your performance or your behavior, but it's conditioned upon what he's accomplished in Jesus. Yeah, there's a lot of comfort in that. And again, we would go, yep, a lot of comfort there. Tracking with you, Paul. Okay, then he says this. Any participation in the Spirit? Now see, after 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit moving and working in people, we're, we, in some senses, we might be better qualified to answer this than they were. They're still trying to figure it out. We got 2,000 years of insight to help us figure out. But the scripture's telling us how the Spirit illuminates the scriptures. Even this morning, God's going to give us insight to understand His Word in a way that we couldn't without the work of the Spirit. That it's going to make known the truth of God. That the Spirit brings conviction. That the Spirit brings comfort. That the Spirit literally lives within us. Think of how mind boggling that is. God lives inside of you. The eternal, sovereign, ruling, reigning God of the universe said, hey, I'll come live inside of you. That's ridiculous. I wouldn't live inside of you. And you wouldn't want to live inside of me. And yet God does that. Well, yeah, there's a lot of comfort in that, right? A lot of participation there. And then he says this finally. He talks about affection and sympathy. And this is, this is more tied to community life, but what Paul is saying is, listen, listen, if, if Paul and Philippians, if we can be together because of the affection and the sympathy that Christ gives to us and extends to us, can't we then do that for each other? And so these four questions that he poses, these four things that he puts in front, in which every one of them we should answer resoundingly, yes, yes, yes. Now again, consider Paul's making an argument here. And I think... In fairness, before we move beyond this, we have to consider these questions in the same manner that the Philippians would have considered these questions. And so in your life, just consider in your life the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then follow it up with this, because this is where Paul's going to take us here in a moment. Does that move me to a particular treatment and a particular engagement of those around me? When I consider the work of God in my life, how does, maybe that's the better question, how does that move me to engage those around me? Because that question is what's in front of the Philippians and it's what's about to be right in front of us. And Paul begins to answer that in verse 2 with his appeal to humility in a common purpose. It's like, hey, listen, I'm going to start with God's work. I'm going to draw you in by all that God has done. But now let me just draw you in further with what God is calling us to. 
and this common purpose. This is really the then part of the if-then statement. If these things are true, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in in full accord and of one mind. See, the same mind, the one mind, it's really a unity of purpose. It's a togetherness around the gospel. And what Paul is driving the Philippians to, and I think what God is driving us to here this morning, is a common mind. And a common mind that's fixed around the gospel. It's fixed around the finished work of Jesus. It's, it's centered around what Christ has done for us and then how that moves us in a particular manner. See, because humility should drive us to the place where our agenda is set aside, our kingdom is set aside, and God's mission and God's agenda is picked up and embraced. That's the singular mind. That's the singular focus. Now, it's not that we're all robots. It's not that we all think the same, look the same, act the same. Unity is not uniformity. Okay? But he's calling us to a singular mindset around the gospel. That is what he is saying. I mean, twice talks about this same mind, one mind. It's an appeal to a common purpose. Question. What is, don't give me the cheesy church answer, just between yourself and the Lord. Be real, raw, and honest. What is the purpose of your life? Now, what is it supposed to be? But if we were to rewind the last seven days or the last 31 days or the last 365 days, what would bear out to be the reality of the purpose of your life? And would it be a singular mindset around the gospel or would it be something different? Here's a few other ways to ask the same question. What are you living for? What drives you? When the alarm goes off tomorrow morning, what is it that's going to motivate you to get out of bed? See, because all of us, all of us, all of us, no doubt there's a purpose in our life. My question is it this one? Is it a same mind, one mind around the gospel? And then as we wrestle through that, see, Paul's not just going to let us answer the question. Then he's going to really begin to press in on our heart response. Is our heart response to that very pressing, very difficult question, is it one of humility? Is it one of arrogance? Is it one of defensiveness? What is it? Well, we're going to begin to find out because I think the word is going to shed some light in each of our lives on that. Embrace humility in our purpose. Notice this secondly, embrace humility in our conduct. Embrace humility in our conduct. Look at what Paul says in verse three and following. He says this, do nothing. Okay, the word nothing there, that's pretty inclusive uh, for like absolutely nothing, okay? Uh, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If that's not underlined in your Bible, fix that right now. If you don't have a pen, grab the guys next to you and underline it. They'll give it back, all right? Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is hard. Have this mind among yourselves. I don't want that mind. Too bad. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
embrace humility in our conduct. Now, before we go any further, before we go any further with this, we've we got to make sure that we're clear on one thing, that if we look at these next few verses absent of the finished work of Christ, if we look at this um, without a gospel lens in view, there's a great danger that we are going to race right into moralism. And we're going to try harder, and you're going to fail miserably, and then you're going to be frustrated. Let me, let, me, let me just encourage you. You can't do verses 3 and 4. Okay? You can't do it. Not even close. How do I know it? Because I'm one of you, and I can't do it either. Because I don't ever consider others more significant than myself. And I know you're no different. See, it's through the finished work of Christ that we have to come at this. And so when we talk about embracing humility in our conduct, it's first letting God transform our heart in these matters. And then as our heart is changed, the behavior and the conduct that begins to flow out and follow from that. So notice two things here. Two things embrace humility in our conduct, verses three and four, that we would embrace a humble heart that we would embrace a humble heart. Paul says three different things I want to just touch on here uh, briefly in these verses. Uh, first of all, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. See, a humble heart does not strive for self-promotion. Rivalry, conceit, uh, those things, that's the motivation that at its core is driving at self-promotion. It's about me. More for me. Improve me, better for me. I'm angling to do more, be more, get more because I'm about me. Now, the humble one, the humble heart isn't angling for self. The humble heart is what we see next. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Sometimes, man, you come to scriptures and you're like, I kind of wish that wasn't in there, you know? Um, But you, you can't deny it. But in humility, and that's the only way you'd ever arrive at this next part, count others more significant than yourself. That you would count others more significant than yourself. Now, how absolutely contrary is this to how we live in our society today? I mean, you you couldn't be any farther opposite than what life looks like in our society I mean, this is the exact opposite of what we're about. In the same way um, that, that the Romans despised the concept of humility, we do too. So imagine, imagine you were to roll into church one morning. Hey, open up your Bibles. Point one, you are less significant than everyone else in the room. It's kind of a hard word. Oh, wait, that's God's word. That's what he's saying right here. And it wasn't the first point. It was the second point this morning, right? See, it's why we have to open the scriptures. Because I would suggest to you, there is nowhere else in your life, except with maybe the possible exception of your spouse from time to time, where you're going to hear this. (laughs) That you are to consider others more significant than yourself. We're marketed to in every way except this. We're told how great we are. We're told how special we are. I can't tell you how many times I'm told that I deserve something for doing nothing. No, I don't. We're not entitled to anything, but we act like we're entitled to everything. You get trophies for showing up nowadays. We could go on and on and on. 
See, because we're never told this. Furthermore, you've got the sin inside of us that is constantly angling for self-promotion. And so the only logical conclusion to arrive at is that the universe revolves around me. And so it's not hard to arrive at the place where you start going, you know what? Y'all are so lucky to know me. You're just, do you know how blessed you are? You're welcome. Let me just say that. You're welcome, all right? But that's where we go. That, that, that's the place that we arrive and we move to this because we're never told the reality that in humility we're to count others as more significant than ourselves. We've got all these things that feed our ego and we're told that we're this special, unique snowflake and there's no one like us and how we're so magical. Now, let me, let me affirm. Let me just affirm God's value that he places within each and every one of us. That's an important thing. God places great value in us, but listen, listen, listen. The value that God places in us should never, ever, ever push us to the place where others are less significant than us. It should always push us to the place where God is greater than us. That is the only logical conclusion in this, and that we would count others as more significant than ourselves Tell you what, let's practice this. I want you to turn to the person sitting next to you and I want you to tell them, you're more significant than me. Tell them that. Okay, okay. There was zero conviction in that. None of you bought it. I bet, okay, listen, listen. I wonder how many of you, I wonder how many of you thought, I can't say it because we're in church, but what I want to tell him is, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know, that's true. But see, that's, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. See, it's one thing to say it. It's a whole other thing to truly believe it. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, he says this. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now listen to what he says next. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Okay, it's not about me, but for him. It's about Jesus who for their sake died and was raised. See, it's not about you and I. Loved ones, this is no doubt a heart Thing. And we can joke about it and we can laugh about, well, I don't really think that you're more significant than me. But at the end of the day, it's what God is calling us to do. Because he's calling us to have a heart that sees him rightly that would then inform how I see myself. And then as I begin to look at others, you know what? I do begin to see that they're more significant. In fact, he continues on that thread. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Not, not only do I consider others more significant, but I have an equal concern for others' needs with respect to my own needs. Let me, let me ask you, how do, how do you care about your own needs? I would suggest you probably care pretty well about your own needs. You'll go to great lengths to make sure that your needs are met. You'll go to um, a great efforts to ensure that you have what you want. And when something doesn't go right in your life, it's a major deal. And sometimes I get phone calls like that at random odd hours. I'm like, is this really that important? 
Because see, when it's me, it's a big deal. Well, what about when this guy's life is falling apart? Well, it's just him. Not my problem. But see, what Paul is saying is, in the same way that I look out for my own interest, that I would also look out for the interest of others. See, loved ones, this is, in fact, the heart of humility. This, this is when we know we've arrived at a place of humility that my needs, my issues, my desires, those things in my life that I recognize that they are not more significant, they are not more pressing, they are not more important than anyone else's. And then as I begin to look at other people's needs and issues and struggles, I go, you know what? That's, that's kind of a big deal. It begins to change how we think about what's going on around us. Embracing a humble heart. Let me just speak candidly for a moment, you know, kind of nuts and bolts very applicably. I'd suggest to you that the best way, the best way to foster humility in your life is it really is simple. Get your eyes off yourself, start looking at God, and start looking at others. It really is that simple. Get your eyes off yourself, get your eyes on God, start looking at others. Humility is going to start welling up inside of you. Now, here's the other wild thing that's going to start welling up, and it's going to well up in a hurry inside of you, is joy. It's a concept of joy. And when I say joy, I'm not talking about like this fleeting happiness. I'm talking about supernatural delight, deep-seated, uh, irrespective of, of circumstance, joy. Now, there's a lot of people that'll tell you the book of Philippians is about joy. I don't think it's about joy. I think the book of Philippians is primarily about a partnership in the gospel, but I think that's one of the primary results when we're partnered together in the gospel is joy. And so we talk about embracing this humble heart. We, we talk about, okay, I, I'm gonna press into this. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes on God. Get your eyes on others. Watch the humility rise up. Watch the joy rise up. Embrace a humble heart. Notice this secondly. Embrace a humble mind. Embrace a humble mind. Paul says this in verse five. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's basically saying, I want you to think like Jesus thought. In your mind that you would conduct yourself the same way that Jesus did. And in a moment, he's going to tell us what that was. But I want you to make note of one thing here in verse 5. And it's these three words, which is yours. See, Paul's not saying do something that you can't do. He's saying do something that God has given to you. Take advantage of what God has put and placed into you. This humble mind, it's yours in Jesus. It's the only way that you're going to think that way. Is if you press into that. And humility. That we would embrace humility in our purpose. We would embrace humility in our conduct. Here's the third thing. Is that we would follow Jesus' example. That we would follow Jesus' example of humility. Now let me, I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. Here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to just simply close your eyes for a moment. And uh, let the depth and the profound nature of what Paul writes here uh, sink in. So hear this truth. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Isn't that amazing? We're talking about the second member of the Trinity here. This, this isn't some guy that we work with. This isn't our neighbor. This is God. And that he would do that. You want to talk about an example of humility. There's no greater example of humility. Maybe not a greater example in all of the scriptures than what we're seeing right here. And the humility in Jesus let me just make note here. There's three things that, that we see or different areas or aspects that we see Jesus' humility. But before we get to that, let me just make note of, of this. <clears throat> Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't first done himself. Jesus is not going to tell you to do something that he himself has not first done. Now, I can think of few things, few things that are worse than hypocrites, Right? Uh, some guy railing on you about hygiene who never brushes his teeth. It's like, hey, you know what? Why don't you pump your brakes there? Or someone who's pushing down the third Twinkie of the morning and they're telling you how important nutrition is. But here's the one that really fires me up. Someone who wants to lecture you on the grace and the mercy of God, but their tone and their conduct is completely stripped and absent of it. Yeah, far too often we're guilty of that. But see, before Jesus ever tells us to do something, he himself does it. Before he ever tells you and I to live in humility, he gives us the greatest example ever. Before he tells us to extend grace and mercy, he does it for us. Before he calls us to for, forgive others of their wrongs and shortcomings in our life, that he does the same for us. Before he ever tells us to die to ourself, he first dies to himself. Right? We would follow Jesus' example of humility. Three, three aspects of this. First of all, I gotta tell you, I was so struck by this just studying this week. I, I don't know that I really noticed it in this context uh, before, but verse six, <clears throat> we see Jesus' humility in heaven. Right? Even in eternity past, before he ever came to earth, Jesus, he didn't become humble, he always was humble. That was always who he was. In fact, Kent Hughes said, um, that very thing. Jesus didn't become humble because he already was humble. See, humility isn't something that we do. It's who we are or aren't. And the reality that Jesus is in fact God, but that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now let's just talk about that for a minute. That word grasped, it literally means to seize, to rob, to cling. It's the idea of attempting to snatch something out of someone else's hands. Think of someone trying to snatch a purse. So Paul is saying, Jesus did not attempt to grab his equality. Can we agree, can we agree that Jesus could have rightfully fought for that? I mean, Paul's already telling us that. He could have. And yet he didn't. I mean, think about that. It was rightfully his. Equality with God. That's a pretty big thing to forego. And yet he stepped away from it. I wonder in our life, right, what's that thing in my life that I fight for, that I cling to, that humility would begin to call me to release it, to let go of it? What right, what privilege, what um, prerogative could you rightfully claim that humility, and loved one, it's time to let go of that? It's time to release that. It's time to be done with that. I mean, Jesus is 
Did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. I'm not sure what your thing is, but it's not that thing. Certainly not that pressing. Further, it makes what we see in verses 3, 4, and 5, it just further magnifies that. To count others as more significant, that the second member of the Trinity didn't fight for his equality with God. All of a sudden, looking at others and going, hey, I'm going to treat them as more significant. That, that doesn't seem quite as pressing, quite as weighty as it maybe did just a few moments ago. Okay, hear me, hear me, hear me when I say this. Jesus did not treat equality with God as an excuse for assertion, but treated it as an occasion to renounce his privilege. Now I want you to think about what right in your life you're clinging to, holding to. I'm not going to let go of that thing. Let me just say that again. Jesus did not treat equality with God as an excuse for assertion. I'm not going to force my rights, but he treated it as an occasion to renounce his privilege. So just ask yourself, what's that thing in my life today? What's that thing that I'm holding on to, that I'm clinging to, that I refuse to let go of? That Jesus example is now pushing me in a different manner. Jesus' humility in heaven. Secondly, in verse 7, we see Jesus' humility in his incarnation. Uh, by incarnation, we just mean Jesus um, coming as a man. His humility is in his life here on earth. And Paul uses a few different phrases here to uh, really help us understand this. He says, he made himself nothing. Some of your translations say that he emptied himself. Uh, plenty of heresies have come out of a misunderstanding of that. God, uh, Jesus did not cease to be God. He was fully God. Okay, he didn't become less God for 33 years. Still fully God. What he forsook, what he um, set aside, were the glories and the prerogatives of his deity. And he let that go. And much like the question we were just asking, we see it again. Are there areas in our life for the sake of humility that I have to forego a certain privilege, a certain prerogative that's rightfully mine? Made himself nothing. Second of all, that he was taking the form of a servant. Right, the second member of the Trinity in a couple verses that every person that's ever lived will find themselves on their knees declaring that he's Lord. But before he's there, the form of a servant. And when you talk about the form of a servant, at least when you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about both the appearance and the being. Can't think of that without thinking about John 13. Crucifixion is imminent. Disciples are arguing over which one of them is better and greater and who gets the right hand and all that other knucklehead stuff. And Jesus takes off his outer garment, dressed as a servant, and with the conduct of a servant begins to wash their feet. Something so despicable, you couldn't even make a slave do that. And the second member of the Trinity is doing that right before his death. Can you find greater humility? Not even close. The form of a servant. Okay, well, if Jesus is that, don't you think the extension would be that you and I would live as servants as well? I mean, the Bible tells us that's exactly what we are. And sometimes, sometimes I think we, we like the appearance of that, but we're not really willing to embrace the being or the conduct of that. Right, following Jesus' example and being a servant. You might, go, you might say, Mike, how do I know? How, how do I know that 
that I truly am acting like a servant. I don't know that I can answer that comprehensively, but I know one way that I've answered that in my life that's been really helpful is I know that I'm a servant when I'm treated like one and I respond appropriately. I respond righteously. I respond biblically. That's when you know you've got a heart of a servant. Thirdly, Paul tells us of Jesus' incarnation, his humility in that is that he took on the likeness of men and he made himself a man. Now, that's not necessarily the worst thing unless you're God. That's a step down. A lot of limitations in that. Now, this is an important point. We, this isn't the only place we see this in the scriptures, but this is certainly an important point um, because Jesus had to be fully a man in order to pay the price for our sin. No sacrifice, no, no partial human, half human, three-quarters human would be sufficient and so Jesus was, in fact, fully man, but I think there's another aspect of this that really um, gives great comfort in the fact that in Jesus' full experience of humanity, that he knows exactly what you and I struggle with. In fact, Hebrews 4 tells us that very thing. That we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us. Yeah, I know what that's like. Yeah, I've been there. I know how it is to struggle here. I know what it is to wrestle with that. Of course, the great distinction between us and Jesus is that never falling to sin. We follow Jesus' example of humility, his example in heaven, that he's always been humble, his example in his incarnation, making himself nothing. Really, the form of a servant is probably the most pressing item for us there. And then we see Jesus' humility in his death. Look at verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then Paul tells us that the nature of that death was, um, really he's referencing how obscene it was to die on the cross, even death on a cross. Jesus' humility in his death, um, quite possibly the single greatest act of humility throughout all of human history. This is the epitome of others-focused, other-centered, a view on God, view on others, off myself. It is a completely and totally selfless act. But make note of a couple things in verse 8. First of all, it says that he humbled himself. Jesus chose that. No one could make him do it. No one could force him to do it. Jesus willingly made that choice. Second of all, talked about Jesus becoming obedient. Became obedient to the point of death. See, even Jesus is obedient to God. And then I love this reality. Even when God's will pointed towards suffering and death. Just ask yourself, am I willing, am I willing, am I willing to be obedient even when it points towards suffering and death? Because it's one thing, right? It's one thing to be obedient when something really good is going to come your way. It's pretty easy, honestly, to be obedient in, in, in uh, that situation. Our kids, uh, when, they're, when, when they know there's like some little treat or prize or something, like, hey, clean your room and you can have dessert. That's pretty easy. But what about follow me? Oh, and by the way, it's going to cost you your life. That's a little bit different. And so in our lives, we have to ask ourselves this question, am I willing to be obedient to even to the point of suffering or death? And not just, not just physical death, but a death to self. Jesus' humility in his death. 
Now, if Paul stopped at verse 8, this would be a radically different passage. But he doesn't. In fact, it gets a whole lot better, whole lot higher, whole lot grander in verses 9 and following. I just wrote this down that we would just that we would celebrate Jesus' exaltation. Part of humility is that we celebrate Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, okay, get this, every knee should bow. Okay, what are they gonna bow? They're gonna bow in heaven, they're gonna bow in earth, and they're gonna bow under the earth. You know what he's saying? Every single person who has ever lived will find themselves one day on their knees before Jesus. Some willingly, many forcibly. All, all, all on their knees. Okay, what are they going to say? Well, they're going to be saying one thing. Every tongue is going to confess. Tell me. That's not how they're going to say it. Tell me how they're going to say it. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's how I'm going to say it. I hope you're going to say it fired up. The exaltation of the risen ruling Savior. Of course, all that is being done to the glory of God the Father. Now, I'll tell you, we, we, we could do an entire sermon on verses 9 through 11. We won't, but we could, okay? Just know that, all right? But, but uh, part of what's happening here is that the glorification of Jesus and knowing this is coming, I believe, that only further serves to amplify Jesus' humility. He knew this was coming. He still made himself nothing. He still veiled his flesh or his deity and flesh. He still took on the form of a servant. He still did all that. And he knew what was coming. Notice a few things here. One, that Jesus will be glorified and exalted, but we won't. There's a greatness in him, and it's not in us, that he will be given the highest name. Now listen, listen, listen. In our um, attempt to, to make everybody feel good and nobody loses and everybody wins, that is not reality. You will go home today, you will watch football teams win and lose. That will happen. The NFL will not go, you know what? We feel really bad for you guys. You guys all get a win today. It doesn't work like that. (laughs) You will go to work tomorrow, someone will get promoted, someone won't. Right? Everybody doesn't win. And the highest name, there's only one who's given the highest name. His name is Jesus. All will surrender to him. I love that thought. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And others, others will do it, but it'll be a little more begrudgingly, maybe even forcibly, but they're going to find themselves pressed to this place. They're going to say, you are the Lord. And the day is coming when this will be true and we'll revel in this reality. But until that day, Until that day, we walk in humility. We walk the road that Jesus walked. We live the life that Jesus lived. And we live and relate with a God that we have no business relating to solely because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. I can't think of any other response but a a response of humility understand who I am in light of who God is and, and to respond accordingly. And as I see the humility of God or the, the, the humility of Jesus uh, here, it is foolish to think that you and I would somehow be able to live differently. 
That Jesus came to live a humble life, but you and I can live contrary to that? That's insanity. That's insanity to think that way. But here's the question in front of us, loved ones, is are we gonna do that? Will we live in humility? Will we live in submission? Will we live in surrender to the one true living Lord of all? Let's pray.